I get up early to enjoy the two hours before sunrise. Darkness and coolness are excellent remedies for a restless mind. After putting in a few logs in the dying embers, yet not trying too hard to fan it, I glance at Slick, who's snoring like a walrus, then walk in the fresh sand at the edge of the foam, regurgitated by the currents. I think about failure. I mull over every possible scenario in my mind. I've poured through all the rights of the stars of previous generations. It's clearly impossible for me to fail. As the first silvery hints of dawn begin to break through, I spy Shockney in the distance, throwing her boomerang in long, curved trajectories, which inevitably return, as if guided by an invisible hand, to its starting point. At first I think she's letting off steam in her own way to forget her brother's disappearance, but her throws seem to be too gentle, too technical, devoid of hate. I realize she's training to prove Slick wrong. Like me, facing my father. Like my father in front of his clan. To each his own motivation. To each his own honor. Slick is what he is. We won't change him overnight. But his attitude has at least focused the axolotl's mind on something other than family distress. The Squilla concerns me. He was promoted a while back, and we don't yet know what he's capable of. It's a real bummer that no other Typhoons were promoted this year. The most promising generation, perhaps, but above all the leanest. Rexus has to sleep in a mud hole, sleeping the sleep of the dead. I wonder what he was thinking, what was going through his mind, when he accepted the Shaman's proposal. He knows he'll be booed. His clan won't support him. He'll be alone. While a team needs to be complete when presenting itself for the star trial under pain of elimination, a member can nevertheless die during the trial without disqualifying his team from the ritual. If Rexus slows us down, he'll get what's coming to him from all the crag. Because, although they worship solidarity, their dislike of the weak or those they consider traitors, is just as strong. The good thing is that the dirty task of pushing him gently out of the door won't fall upon me. At best, he'll be chased away. At worst, torn to pieces tonight at the big party. My senses are strangely alert this morning. I can feel the slightest vibration created by the thrust of a shrimp under a wave. Here and there a crab burying itself in the silt. Under my feet a colony of clams draining the mud. And the scent of a swordfish bleeding on the horizon. Silent footsteps on my right. So, Amana, what's your strategy for the blue giant? Arkansa is awake and kitted out. Her long spears bent diagonally by an old manatee leather strap across her torso. The strap runs under her narrow shell, which protects her from the neck to the pelvis. She stretches and yawns without a care, a huge spike of hair sticking out from her messy head. You really think you'll pass the trial with that look? I need breakfast. Have you got anything to snack on? 
There's a wolfish hunting a few meters ahead. I can feel it. She squints and scans the surface of the water. Then she passes me and drops waist deep into the gray water. With a caress, she meticulously runs her greenish hand along the bandolier and selects a needle, which she draws with well-practiced caution. She sniffs, winces, and she pinches the tip between her two large fingers and then pushes it into the back of her neck. I see it. I go. Akanza then disappears under the dark waves, leaving a few eddies before resurfacing with a fish in her mouth, grabbing at it with her hand and devouring it, ignoring my disgust at the blood and the scales that splatter her cheeks. Thanks, Amon. By the way, can you give it back? Give you what back? Under your fin. At first thinking it's a joke on the part of the young turtle, granddaughter of Jakpa, and prodigious shaman, who seems to care nothing about what's at stake in this event. I shrug. She holds out her hand, expecting something. I yield to her foolishness and check under my flipper. A feeling of disgust frees my blood as my fingers make out a long, cold glass stinger pressed along my spine. Just rip it straight out. There's no risk. I do so. The needle comes out. Immaculate. Not a trace of blood. At first I feel like ripping Arkansa a new one for daring such a risky move without warning me. But I remember that since the team was formed, the turtle has always been more vicious than fearless. She's just testing my qualities as leader. If I don't stand my ground now, I'll look like a coward, impressed by her trickery. I'd be implicitly acknowledging a talent and skill that I lack, and which I need for the trial. Arkansa would play on it in the future, making it an issue in the trial to increase the group's dependence on her. Not because she needs to feel useful, but because it amuses her. So I understand how invidious my position is. If I lose my temper, I'll be betraying my surprise and, potentially, the slight rush of fear that seizes me as I decipher the twisted ambivalence of this situation. The shaman knows this very well. She stares at me, motionless, and gloats as she realizes I've understood. Poor emotional management. She'll deem me immature, impulsive, thoughtless, an illegitimate leader. She's not Jackpa's descendant for nothing. Clearly the art of shamans is not limited to mastering the elements, making remedies, and reading the stars. I crack my fingers. So much for poor emotional management, I've made my choice. I'd rather strike fear with my fists than contempt with nothing. If her shamanic skills are as good as they say they are, she can easily heal a broken bone or two. And then she was asking for it. I wake up at the crack of dawn groggy, feeling as old as Grandpa Wangi. There's no one left in the hut. Where are they all? Even our cans of the slug has managed to get his ass in gear. It's not looking good, Sleek. Get moving. A seagull wanders into the tent. 
and plunders the remains of yesterday's dinner, fearless. I immediately check if I've got enough fuel in the tank for the trial. A flash of lightning illuminates the tent. Bam! A loud explosion in the sea air, and I send a great bolt towards the bird, which is walking around like it owns the place. With a whip of cordite, it drops dead. Barbecued. I'm full of energy. Ready to go. Blue Giant, I'm gonna make you squeal. I look outside and check the position of the sun. As I pass, I see Aman talking to Arkansas. The axolotl a little further on is doing some strange things with his weapon. This is the moment. The squealer is nowhere to be found. <laughs> Good. His dead crab face is the last thing I want to see when I wake up. By the height of the sun, I must have just over an hour left. I'm going to have a nice quiet drink before one of them really pisses me off. We've been wading in a single file along the shoreline towards the sunken cave for a good hour now. The Krog are lined up in two rows and we walk through the middle of this sacred pathway to the clamor of the war horns carved from Walrus Tooth. They sing the war hymn, the call of the abyss. Slick takes the lead, moving forward as if alone, prancing with his chest out and welcoming the praise with expansive moves, encouraging the crowd to shout louder, pretending to threaten a bystander who is a bit too forward for his taste. Shackney follows suit. She watches his back as if it has a target on it, but concentrates on maintaining the exaggerated and awkward stance of someone who is unused to popularity. Then there's me. I'm not sure what I'm doing here, but I'm determined to have a good time. My great-grandfather awaits us at the top of the sunken cave. Until then, I'll try to show some spirit. It makes me think the primary purpose of this barbaric cophony is to completely destroy our morale. Rukyan, if you can hear me, maybe you made the right choice. Another hour of stomping around in the mud and then things will get real. Rex's is behind me. It's amazing how incredibly supportive the Krog are when isolated and how they can turn into a boiling pot of anger and hate when in a group, like a contagious disease. The taunts have intensified behind his back. Sometimes he bends his head under the hail of taunts, but on the whole, he takes it in stride. That's a shame. It seems that when all said and done, we'll have to pass the star trial. Amanaka leads the way, unperturbed. In an instant, the insults hurled at Rexus turn into praise for the prince. It's fun to watch this torrent of emotions, unstable and more changeable than the weather in the breeding season. Praise, insults, and screaming rain down. Some, according to tradition, throw sand at us and give us strength. As is customary, we advance at the pace of the drumbeats. The rain has returned and is beating against my shell. In the restless mass that lines the route are many fishermen who are already drunk. Apart from the squillas, all the warrior clans are present. The walrus men and their chief Malakay are as austere as ever. They do, however, give the occasional rough clap with their huge calloused hands. Swordfish, sharks, octopuses, killer whales, and dozens of other siblings shown for their feats on the battlefield, are watching today. The electric eels are here. I bet Slick is ashamed. He makes a special effort to avoid looking in their direction. As we reach them, 
I see that old devil Sawangi cracking a joke out of earshot and throwing a bit of mud at his grandson. <laughs> Laughter erupts. Slick foams with rage and Shackney hides a smile. I meet the gaze of my uncle, Gakpei. Oh, Gakpei, my beloved mentor. So much kindness, humility, and talent. And those simple smiles that he's so good at. The compassionate kind that soothe your mind. It brings tears to your eyes. I give him a discreet sign and feel like a brat for giving this trial less importance than my master. I swear to myself that I'll at least try to make it to the end. For Gakpei. But my master doesn't smile. He even pulls a grave face. I've never seen him like this. It might look like the Star Trial is evoking some deep nostalgia in him, or he's worried about me. But Gakpei is never worried unless something very serious is about to happen, or someone close to him is in real danger. The atmosphere of the ceremony, which has been grotesque at best, now feels sickening to me. I now stop speculating about the future when a projectile more substantial than a pinch of sand passes over my head and snaps me out of my thoughts. The spray is not encouraging. The crowd falls silent. Dead silent. We stop, and I bump into Shackney. Even Slick seems disconcerted. It's Rex's. Someone has just thrown a dead, stinking carrion in his face. A dead fox. In the Krag culture, everything that walks on the earth represents danger, death, the enemy. The intention is clear, and the affront is real. For a land animal to appear in a Krog ceremony is a great sacrilege, even towards the mantis shrimp. Rexes, don't do anything stupid. But the squilla remains frozen. The red fur full of maggots covers his face. He removes it carefully and examines it. His jaws are clenched, and his dull eyes have begun to glow. Put that thing down and get on with it. Don't be stupid. This morning at dawn, when Amanaka approached me, I thought I was about to be taken out of the competition. I'd have deserved it. You don't stick a needle in the leader's back at dawn, even for a laugh. But unexpectedly, he slowly withdrew the sting I had planted in his neck. He stared me down, and at that moment I think he understood the power of my crystal pikes. His senses awoke all at once like an anthill called to war. And that very moment, he could see, smell, and hear just about everything within a hundred strokes. He took a run and hurled the blade in my direction with all his might. I wouldn't have had time to react if I had been the target. It whistled through the air, in the water, and I smelled blood. Behind me, a huge, convulsing barracuda surfaced and struck in the head. Bon appétit, Yark. He simply said, Amanaka is a born leader. It's in this kind of situation that a leader shows their worth, making the best possible decision as quickly as possible in the interests of the group. The insult to Rex's would force him to challenge the perpetrator of such blasphemy to a duel to clear his name. Amanaka knows this. Rex's knows this. The crowd, suspended in silence, also knows this and waits. If the duel doesn't take place, the Squilla will be dishonored as a warrior. But if Rexes gets into a fight with a stupid drunken sinner, the ceremony will be ruined and will be eliminated. 
The Squilla awaits Amanaka's reaction. Seconds pass like hours before the prince speaks. Nothing to see here. Forward. Rex's then falls in line with his neck bent. He drops the dead fox, shaking and aware that Amanaka has just publicly sacrificed his honor to a crag. The message is clear. I won't defend the Squilla. Do what you want with him. We start walking again. Rex's no longer even looks up and his step has become heavier. He stares at the ground, just putting one foot in front of the other his shell soiled by all sorts of fruit, algae, and spit. Shackney moves forward, tense. Slick has the opposite reaction and even seems to be amused by the situation in a way he ignores the taunts hurled towards our fifth member. With every insult, I expect the target to implode and just disappear into the ocean, but he merely wipes his face. Three years waiting for the trial certainly teaches you patience. An hour goes by in the sacred procession that has degenerated into a public trial. Eventually, we reach the foot of the sunken cave, where the winding, slippery path to the top comes as a relief. We will continue alone until we reach Jakpa, King Akoyandi and his wife Queen Kalinga at the entrance to the star pit. There's no room for the crag on the path cut from stone, so they'll be standing in the sunken cave, on the ledges, escarpments and alcoves, so they don't miss a second of the show. The clan will be able to watch us dive into the pit through the glass wall of this gigantic test tube where we'll prove our worth. We enter the narrow, windy, and damp corridor. A real nice rink that exhales gusts of icy wind. Slick in the lead almost loses his balance with every step. The wind buffeting my shell is a real ordeal, like a giant's hand pulling me back. I stick a needle under my plexus in the line of force and gradually regain the strength of my legs. Eventually, we reach the top. Two braziers adorn the final steps, where Akuyandi and Jakpa await us. Queen Kalinga is nowhere to be seen. This can only be explained by Rukin's disappearance. When reconnaissance is required, Kalinga does it in person, accompanied by an elite escort. This mission might look like a political maneuver to show the people that even the elite of the clan are doing their bit. But Queen Octopus is peerless when it comes to this kind of dirty work. I don't even know if Kalinga's brain capacity can be called intelligence because she operates on a completely different level than any of the wise people in our ranks. Her observational skills, which are more like a sixth sense, make her the best tracker of the crowd clan. She can count the precise number of grains and a handful of sand in the blink of an eye, understand the currents by the way the cycles of waves repeat, and spot the absence of a tree leaf that had been on the end of a branch the day before. So finding a young idiot lost in the jungle? Akuyandi gives a hint of a smile when he sees his son climbing the stairs last. He looks huge from up close and is wearing his usual fighter's outfit. A necklace with each glass bead the size of my head. A rope wider than my leg twists a looped stone belt around his gigantic waist to cover the essentials. Twelve phosphorescent moons are tattooed on his limbs, under his double chin, and on his back. He exudes a terrible sense of calm and a certain empathy that fails to conceal his titanic power. Amanaka just gives a vague nod. Jackpa looks tiny in comparison. 
He rubs his hands together, his wrinkles distorted by his rakishly cheerful air. Unlike the king, he's dressed in traditional ceremonial clothing. His toga woven from yarns impregnated with coral that give it a bluish tinge. The luminescent arabesques of the four elements, which have been heat engraved into the fabric using an ink based on stardust, are depicted on the fabric. His outfit appears to be alive with the turquoise light embedded into the symbols. He also wears a doublet of finest Tempfuna leather, an impenetrable suit of armor given to elders whose impeccable condition commands respect. I can't even be bothered to crack a smile, so mentally exhausted am I by the walk. Slick stretches his whole body out. Shakni kneels and greets the king of the Krag, and the high shaman Jakpa, who clears his throat and appears to feel no compulsion to comment on the queen's absence. As if nothing is up, he begins his sermon. Welcome to the first round of the Star Trial, young typhoons. Akuyandi remains silent. Great leaden clouds threaten to crack. A storm is brewing. The high shaman coughs and resumes. <coughs> so today, you will be seeking astral light from the blue giant. This light must be collected and imprinted on your body. Our tattoo artists will extract the essence that will form the ink of your first tattoo. The Quarter Moon. Nobody who ascends without their light may continue the trial. The more the blue giant hugs you, the more powerful the astral light of your tattoo will be. He points to Akuyandi. His tattoos are almost dazzling. The longer the giants embrace, the more likely you are to be crushed and devoured. No holds barred. Don't hold back because she won't. So I recommend leaving nobody behind in the arms of the giant. For us, Crag, our strength comes from union. And strength is all we respect. As well as being booed, you'll face great difficulties in the coming trials. But do as you please, young typhoons. The crag have already been waiting too long. I declare the first round of the Star Trial open. I'll see you back here in two hours.